0: From February of 1971 On Being Relevant Author Unknown In the early 60s, one frequently heard or read the words viable and charisma. Programs and plans had to be viable. Leaders, especially political leaders, had to have charisma to be relevant. Like many words which enjoy a brief, popular usage, those words acquired a hypnotic power over men's minds because they were used primarily as labels, not as exact ideas. Viable means simply capable of growth or development. A seed is viable. An egg is viable. Ten years ago, it was fashionable to say that a social welfare program, a piece of legislation, Or, an international agreement was viable and therefore good. The ideas of a political opponent, of course, were damned because they weren't viable. While all seeds and all eggs are viable, a large proportion of them fail to ripen or develop. The environment may be hostile. The growth process may be stifled by a malfunctioning metabolism like a cancer. Similarly, all plans and programs can be described as viable. But if they are based on false conceptions of human nature, on unrealistic analyses of the resources and manpower to carry them out, their viability is destroyed by an unfavorable environment or a malfunctioning organization. Viable became popular with politicians as an emotive label to win votes like the soap manufacturer who calls granulated soap surge or cold power to induce housewives to buy his product. Psychedelic suds might be more relevant now. Charisma was similarly misused for its emotive value. Its exact meaning was largely ignored. It is the plural form of charism, a Greek derivative used in theology to denote a special spiritual or supernatural gift of grace, like the tongues of flame which appeared over the heads of the apostles on Pentecost, or the halos over the heads of saints in medieval paintings. But suddenly we learned that this or that political candidate had charisma, or poor opponent, he had none. The image of a politician wearing a couple of halos still seems incongruous, politics being the worldly game that it is. Charisma was used, of course, to give a fellow citizen aspiring to public office a special label, to sell him to the voters. It made him more relevant. Now, in the 70s, we're being hypnotized by the label relevant. The establishment is no longer relevant to the needs of our changing world. If one is past the age of 30... He is, ipso facto, irrelevant. Concepts of morality are no longer relevant in a mobile, exploding population, although no one seems to be interested in explaining why pornographic literature, drama, and motion pictures are any more relevant to a moving, expanding population than their opposites. It becomes more and more obvious that the popular use of relevant is too often a matter of name-calling, to express contempt for those who have different values or who disagree. Once again, the exact meaning of a word is being ignored in order to give it strong emotive power. Relevant comes to us from our Anglo-Saxon legal traditions. It's derived from a Latin word meaning to raise or lift up. While its common meaning is pertinent or applicable to, In law, that meaning recognizes both negative and positive points of view. Evidence, for example, is said to be relevant if it tends to prove or disprove the issues at hand. To label all that one disagrees with as not relevant is merely name-calling. To condemn all other relevant evidence which tends to disprove one's own prejudices. That is semantic injustice which leads to legal and social injustice. Shakespeare's Macbeth followed a course of bloodshed and murder because he believed it was relevant to the witch's prophecies. To be relevant is not necessarily to be ethically, morally, or socially right. A corollary idea about relevance is the assumption that if it's not relevant, it's got to be changed. Many a revolutionary, having heard the label not relevant applied to a concept, a belief, an individual, or an institution, shrieks for its destruction or obliteration. He's like the nurse who thought the bathwater was getting too cold for the baby, so she threw it all out with the baby still in it. Freemasonry has been touched by this urge to make changes. There are those who want to make the institution more relevant to our modern world. There are Masons who want to modernize the ritual, its organization, its practices, and even some of its basic principles. Fortunately, such brethren are not revolutionaries who want to destroy. They are aware that builders must have knowledge and constructive plans, but some of them have been dazzled by the slogan that You've got to make changes to be relevant. Indicative of these stirrings of discontent are questions like these. Why do we retain the archaic language of the ritual? It was old even when Anderson's Constitutions was published in 1923. Why do we persist in listening to meaningless flowery speeches, especially in receiving distinguished visitors in lodge or at the banquet table? Why do we insist on preserving long ceremonial activities, as in the opening and closing of the lodges? Why do we cling to the rule of no solicitation? Everybody knows you have to be a go-getter these days. Some of these proposed changes would actually revolutionize the institution and create an organization unrecognizable to the Mason of today unrecognizable to the Mason who's committed to Masonry as a way of life. Freemasonry has always been unique, different. That's one of the reasons it's survived the storms of centuries. More indicative of a constructive concern about Masonry's relevance are questions like these. Is leadership training the imperative need of the fraternity today? What can the individual Mason do to exert more influence in the civic, political, and religious activities of his community? But most important, it seems to me, is the answer to the question about the cornerstone of Freemasonry's meaning and value. What is the craft's fundamental purpose or objective, and is it viable in our times? Until a Mason really understands what Freemasonry's purpose is, and until he's actively committed to its fulfillment, answers to all the other questions will tend to be influenced by the glittering slogan that we've got to make changes to be relevant. Relevant to what? To the easy hopes of a narcotized, out-of-joint, compacted generation which has already realized the futility of its euphoric dreams and sings, Those were the days, my friend, we thought would never end. We'd sing and dance forever and a day. Some of the changes proposed to make Freemasonry more relevant are really attempts to find solutions for some of the worrisome problems of the craft, like poor attendance or declining membership. The old suggestions are appearing under the currently popular label, relevant, just to make them seem modern and urgent. To put it bluntly, they often ignore the real spirit and mission of Freemasonry. Their proposers are actually ready to transform the institution into a mere club or pressure group without even realizing the eventual outcome of their reorganization. One is forced to reflect sadly on how many Masons really don't know what Freemasonry is. They want to change an organization but they forget that it's the individual brother who makes Freemasonry what it is or isn't. In Freemasonry, the individual member is of vital importance. We take the new member, one at a time, and teach him a philosophy of life we believe relevant to all places and seasons. The emphasis is on him. The hope is that he will go out into the world a better man. Freemasonry seeks to improve the quality of the individual member, not the quality of the entire world, an impossible task. Yet, the changing world requires Freemasons to consider the relevance of their institution. The house organ of a nationwide corporation recently carried a thoughtful speculation by the company's vice president about modern man's relevance to his institutions. Quote, Man is no longer within a single community. He can be born in one, live in another, go to school in a third, work in a fourth, attend church in a fifth, and seek his recreation in many others. His horizons are broad and his contacts unlimited. He certainly can no longer be influenced as much by his home, his school, his church, or his job as he previously has been unless these institutions restructure themselves and look upon him as mobile. Since the home, school, church, and community no longer meet the needs of the individual as he once existed, there must be a substitute. This alternate, it seems to us, must be the development of self-discipline. When man was confined to a single community, he was disciplined by the institutions and the people of that community since he was constantly within their surveillance and influence. This no longer being the case, he alone is the only institution that is always with himself, regardless of the numerous localities within which he finds himself and the distances between these localities. Self-discipline is conscience, and conscience is a core of built-in guidelines or truths. It has been a bit of a shock to find lack of uniform acceptance of many of the Ten Commandments. It's disconcerting to find that there are times when thou shalt kill, thou shalt bear false witness, thou shalt steal, thou shalt covet, thou shalt not honor thy father and mother. It's interesting to discover that there are two kinds of truth absolute and situational. If mobile man no longer has the discipline of the small community, and if a substitute for it is self-discipline, and if self-discipline needs a value system, then some institution, some persons, must get busy very soon in helping to develop a deeper conscience. End of quote. Self-discipline? A value system? To develop a deeper conscience? Is this not the fundamental purpose of Masonry's philosophy and teaching? To take the individual man of conscience, one at a time, to enrich his system of values by the symbols of the builder's art, and to encourage him by self-discipline to develop a deeper conscience so that he can bring to the community in which he lives the stabilizing blessings of brotherly love, understanding, relief, and truth. That has always been the purpose of our gentle craft. That objective has been relevant to the needs of every era and generation. The fundamental lessons of the craft are more needed today than in many years past. It's interesting to note that a modern business executive is suggesting the need for an institution to develop a deeper conscience for all mankind in spite of the harsh denial of values at the present time. The real question is not whether Freemasonry is relevant to the modern world, but whether modern Freemasons are relevant to the spirit and teachings of their fraternity. The author of the essay quoted above believes that some institution, some persons must get busy very soon in helping to develop a deeper conscience for mankind. He appears to be unaware of the goals and activities of Freemasonry, but that is probably the fault of its members. Apparently, they've not demonstrated convincingly enough the good effects of their fraternal association. To be relevant is not merely to make changes, especially for the sake of mere change. To be relevant is to be pertinent to, And applicable to. When Masons are overwhelmingly pertinent to the tenets of their profession, that is, actively committed to exemplifying those tenets in all that they say and do, then will Masonry be truly relevant to the age in which it exists, be it stable or revolutionary, calm or disturbed. Masons must first be relevant to Freemasonry. This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, and this has been the Short Talk Bulletin podcast, produced in cooperation with the Masonic Service Association of North America for the purpose of providing a common stock of vetted Masonic information to all of the constituent lodges of all of the member jurisdictions and is made possible through a generous grant from the Grand Lodge AF&AM of Minnesota, who have been engaging and inspiring good men who believe in a supreme being to live according to the Masonic tenets of brotherly love, relief, and truth since 1853.